Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. We're back with the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in to today's episode. This is episode 197, three episodes away from our 200th episode, Ryan. It's been an interesting week this week. How are things going on your end? Well, they're they're pretty lovely. We picked up another five-star review. We picked up another one-star review. Who's giving us one-star reviews? Like, seriously, who is wasting their time? Give us a five-star review and roast us. That's like that's the beauty of it. Don't be a coward and drop the one-star and go away. We, we want to hear it. We want to hear from you about your COVID nonsense or why you're upset. We talked about not wearing masks or why we don't buy into the latest hysteria. Please, please go ahead and do five stars and do that. Okay. Here it is. This is from uh, VW99. Top notch. I started listening to this podcast a year ago during the negative price crisis. Too soon to bring it up. Too soon. <laughs> learning about energy industry from this. I live in Ohio and don't work in only gas, but this gives me a good perspective on the ground reality and the right mix of information and comedy. Thank you for that. W99, VW99. Um, but yeah, let's not talk about those negative prices just quite yet. It's a little. A little salt in the wound there. A lot of salt mm. in the wound, to be quite honest with you. Yeah, so uh, what's that leave us now, Ron? 97 more to... Uh, 400, yeah. Yeah, 400. yeah working on 400. So uh, we are, yeah, th- uh, 97 more to 400. And, um, you know... Nearly I mean, there. Nah, listen, with our listener base, we could have that by next show if, if they wanted to. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying there's pressure. I'm just saying if they really, if they really wanted to, they could... They could get that done. You know, we're looking at look look at the let's hear one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Uh oh, the baby's about there crying now. You know, you talk about the show right now, Josh. We're like um top thirty, it looks like in the business news category. We're heavyweights, man. We're we're the real deal, Holyfield. And so, you know, we I don't want to say we've earned the five stars, but you know, you listeners have earned the right to give us a five star review. That's how it is, right? Yeah, yeah, like, that's right. Like together, we have roamed the show. Josh's phone's pinging, and my baby's crying. That's why we need five stars. It's it's <laughs> like y'all don't know what's going on behind the scenes here, people. It's craziness. Kids running around, phones going off. Wake up every day hoping for a five star review. Well, Ryan, I am uh, waking up every day hoping that Aramco just keeps these uh, these cuts off the market. Uh, keep keep these barrels off the market. I'm. Uh, they're supposed to be meeting here pretty soon, and uh, this this is going to be this is going to be the moment. I think there's a report that came out here uh, the 22nd, which is today, that they uh, reported a net profit of 49 billion for 2020, down 44 percent on the year, but still a positive year. So they're down 44 percent. The bad day at the office. So here's a question: Is that is that going to incentivize them to uh, to start doing a little bit more? You know, is that that report? Um, I mean, surely they already knew all this before this report came out. We're learning about it, but but they knew. Uh, so I don't think this report necessarily is going to indicate a uh, a change of heart. But I'm wondering if a look into what's going on, if we can expect them to put some more barrels on the market here pretty soon. Yeah. So let me see here. I wanted to see here. Um... Uh, 
Well, I wanted to find this article and I can't find it now. But it talked about the, you know, the physical. Yeah, here it is. This is this is from um, um, Bloomberg on the 18th. Physical oil mark. Oh, 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 communist. Physical oil markets weakens with China fires on the sidelines. The market physical crude. The, the market for physical crude barrels in Asia is showing signs of weakness with muted buying from some in China leading to ample supply. Um, so you, you have that the Chinese buying, we, I think we talked about this somewhere here, have, um, you know, has kind of slowed down. Now there is some maintenance going on as part of it. Um, and I'm trying to see Big Warren, uh, who you should follow on Twitter if you want to follow on gas stuff. Has some tweets about that this morning. Let's see here. What is he saying? He says, um, Weakness of the physical market. Equinor showed loading uh, one too many plants. Pre-COVID. One more. Excuse, excuse the physical market is weak because of refinery maintenance in China in April, May is just silly. The physical market is weak for cargoes loading March, April, May. Those cargoes will be processed in China in June, July, August after maintenance. This is not a weakness due to maintenance. So, you know, there's a lot of talk out here. Um, and he goes on to say, someone to ask him, do you think that reflects an actual demand shortage or pressure on oil prices due to inventory for cheaper 2020 oil? And he says, I think it's, it is because China can use storage if they need to, but Chinese margins are, are also very poor at the moment. So, you know, when you look at this, we talk about the prices, the price is going up, what are the Saudis going to do? The Saudis, you know, if I were them, and this was, this, I put this out there about a month ago, I would do everything I could to keep the prices from going to 70. You know, I don't have the day that they have. So for me, that would have meant putting the barrels on the market to keep the price going up. Well, guess what? They didn't put the price on the, on the, on the, on the, on the market and the price, uh, they didn't put the barrels on the market and the price didn't go up. So they made the right call, right? So they don't want the price. I don't think getting above 70 and then kind of going hog wild with the U S producers looking to drill. So I think we got to tip our cats to the Saudis. They've they played this right. It seems like you know the prices are not out of control. Um, they haven't put too much because if they would have put that million dollars, uh, I can't speak today. Those million barrels a day on the market you talked about, well, prices would be going down, right? So they've they've really played it right. So their margins, I know they they didn't make as much, you know, they're losing money and all that stuff. That's part of the game, and so it looks like they're playing it right from my perspective right now, at least. You're muted. Sorry, I was. Uh, so what you would say then is that your your uh, your guess or your insight and what the, the reason why they did not put those barrels on the market is that they still see a lower demand slash uh, too much supply still there, and so not putting those barrels on the market will prevent the price from getting pushed down. Because when they put the barrels on the market, they're thinking that it's that there's going to be a sharp decline yeah, in the price. So my, my view on the Saudis was very simplistic. I, listen, there's people with refineries and all kinds of stuff that would may disagree or whatever, but I just said, imagine that we're selling hamburgers and there's a hamburger stock exchange. And I told you I was going to put a million less hamburgers on the market in the, during this time period. You'd say, why? And I could say, well, I don't have the work, the resource, the beef. I can't get them out. There's a reason that's preventing me from doing it. Or I could say, I don't think there's, there's going to be a million hamburgers to be bought. So I do 10 million hamburgers in January. I'm going to do nine in February because I don't think there's going to be that many hamburgers sold. That was how I read what the Saudis were doing was that they didn't think that the oil 
um, demand was going to be up that quick. And so they were taking the million off. And then you look at what they did again. I was surprised they did it again because I thought maybe the demand was picking back up. Well, they didn't do it. Well, guess what? They're not doing this has put the prices higher, but it hasn't sent them out. You know, it's not like the prices are going crazy. So whatever, even, even my simple analogy doesn't work. Whatever they're doing is not sending the prices to the roof. And so they're, they're playing it right. I don't, I mean, I think we all thought that they were going to put these barrels, if they take these barrels off, that you would see something to where, um, you know, the price might get really high and it hasn't. So I think demand is just fundamentally weaker than most people want to admit. We've had what, three weeks of storage increase now, something like that. I know we set a record three, three, four weeks ago. Uh, and then we did like half that amount the next week. So, so we'll see. Demand, I think, has to pick up next few months, assuming there's not new lockdowns, which there's reports of new lockdowns. You know, I don't know if you've seen some of that stuff for the weekend, but, um, you know, there's, you know, I know that Germany, I think it is, Switzerland, London, I think those are three places. And, of course, in Miami, I'm not really sure what's going on in Miami, but it looks like they're trying to party down there, and the folks ain't having it. So, um, but, you know, it's spring break season, right? Um, you got holiday, uh, travel season coming up, so... Will we let allow people to get out and about, travel the country, travel the world for summer, do these things? That would be a big boon for demand, and I don't know. So we shall see. Well, uh, yeah, that is a good question. I didn't see anything about the lockdowns. Um, I mean, in Texas, it seems like everything's been uh, going back to normal, uh, you know, as much as much as you would expect, and and you know the way that the way the times are right now, but. So I, I didn't hear about the stuff in Miami. I did. I did see there was some news about Miami coming out, but I didn't. I didn't actually follow it. So uh, yeah. they're not. They're not letting people go to the beach, or, or what are they doing? Know, yeah, I just caught it last night, and apparently they instituted a curfew. So I don't know if they have some kind of like capacity restrictions or whatever, and they were they were blowing through that. I don't know, but they were they instituted a curfew to kind of curtail whatever was going on down there. And I guess it's spring break, people down there partying and stuff, and so um, you know curfew. Yeah, yeah. My goodness. Yeah. Well, you know, we got to have our handheld by, you know, Daddy Fauci or we're going to be in trouble. You see how that's going to work. <laughs> I bet I, they're going to put Panama out of business or uh, people are going to say, screw it, just keep doing what they want to do. All right. So we have another article here. Can Venezuela's oil industry come back from the dead? That, this is kind of like the International Day, Brian. There, there wasn't a lot of news out of the Permian this week. So, uh, I'm just looking at some of the factors that are going to have a play a big part potentially in oil price for the next say month or two. So looking at Saudi Aramco, and then I saw this article, and uh, I mean that I don't necessarily think this is. Uh, I'm not optimistic that Venezuela is going to come back on the market, but um, if they did, it could be a pretty big um, deal. You know, the oil price, and especially where we're at right now. Yeah, I, it's funny because if you look at what, what their production was, what a few years ago it was two million, two something million barrels a day. Now it's like five hundred thousand barrels a day, something like that. It's 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 dropped off pretty significant. And the thing for you know Venezuela or Nigeria or the or Mexico or these com- countries that are seeding barrels because of no real reason. So Nigeria has a ton of theft. Uh, Mexico has a ton of theft. Uh, Venezuela has all kinds of problems. So they're seeding barrels to the market that they shouldn't be seeding, right? They should have their production at you know whatever it is two million barrels a day or whatever it should be. Um, they shouldn't be losing this much because their country is so poorly ran. And what's happening is it's not like those barrels are causing the price to go through the roof, right? 
Yeah. So if you look at Venezuela, the the the, 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 the decline of their industry has not kept prices at hundred dollars a barrel. Someone else has just picked those barrels up for them. So how do they get back to the market? That's the question. So if they said tomorrow they fix up the problems and they wanted to put you know two million barrels a, a day again on the on the, on the market, so one point five million barrel increase roughly. Okay. Well, what's that going to do the prices? Well, that's gonna that's gonna really hurt the prices. So how do they get back? I don't know. That's that's a tough question. I do think. They will eventually come back. I don't, you know, there's no reason to believe that they, they, they're, they're gone forever. But I think they've really, some of these countries have really kind of missed the boat here, especially like in Nigeria, like in Mexico, in Venezuela. They lose so much to, to theft and to mismanagement. And the market is just picking those barrels up and they're losing it. Now, the theft stuff's a little bit more complicated than that. But um, the other thing to, to follow here is Venezuela's times with China. And, you know, I know that the petrodollar has been the demise. Of the petrodollar has been predicted for quite some time. I do think, though, we are entering into the next few years will be the biggest push on the dollar as a reserve currency that we've, that, you know, in our lifetime. And you know, since the dollar has been a reserve currency since 1944, it's probably the biggest stress because China's digital yuan, the Belt and Road Initiative, all the things they have going on uh, will put pressure uh, on the dollar's reserve currency. And so will China eventually say to someone like Venezuela, you know, listen, you guys, it's, um, you know, the dollars causing you guys business to really struggle. You know, why don't we go to the digital yuan? We can do transactions there. So I think you have a lot of stuff like that that could really change the balance of power. I don't, I don't think China's ready to make that step today, but possibly in the future. Yeah, so... Uh... Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. I, I I do see that China is increasing some of their imports, but um, yeah, I've always wondered about when Venezuela was going to come back because I mean the oil has, isn't really going anywhere; it's there, so there's an opportunity. I wonder if maybe they will partner with other nations or partner with other people that can come in and maybe do it at a better, you know, more efficient manner. Um, well, yeah. I mean, the, the yeah. here here's the greatest. I know we are, our guest in the backstage there. So our greatest way to the greatest way to create wealth across the world right now would be to transfer ownership of minerals to private citizens. Like you want to talk about in, income inequality, talk about income uh, disparity, all this stuff. If you transferred in all these emerging markets, you transferred the minerals from the government to the people, that would be the greatest single shift of wealth in mankind's history from the elite to the working class people. Now, when I say that, I understand that if you did that, you'd probably have all kinds of you know mass murders because people would be going after landowners with minerals. So you have to do it a little bit more strategically. But fundamentally, if you really want to generate wealth across the globe, you just do that today. You start figuring that out because if you did that, then all of a sudden all these incentives and all this stuff would change, and you would have the the single largest shift of wealth from the top to the lower class um, by just simply transferring the minerals. It won't happen because politicians are corrupt. So, anyways, I know we got our guest. Let's uh, bring him on now. Can you hear us, sir? I can. Let me put you up here on the big screen. Get me and Josh over here on the side view. All right, there we go. All right, well, why don't you give everyone a quick introduction of who you are and who you are with? Sure. Well, my name is Justin Bradshaw, and I'm the uh, CEO here at Energy Ogre. And, uh, you know, we're, we're in the business of helping folks in the competitive market areas make good decisions and handle their electricity purchasing process for them to try to make everything as simple as possible i guess that's a reader's digest version hmm. there you go so josh did you book this because you know 
So I don't know if you know, my, my nickname is Shrek. And so I've been called, I've been called an ogre. By some <laughs> um, so I don't know if Josh puts you up to this or this is a conspiracy against me. I feel, I feel like something may be going on here a little, a little bit more nefarious. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So energy ogre, just curious. That, that's a, that's, let's see if I can get this to work. Yeah, there we go. Uh, that's a good looking name there. So where did that come from? You know, it's interesting. We uh, we have some super creative people here, and uh, we ran a competition, uh, some brainstorming ideas, and we came up with five or six different things. You know, our, our idea here was, you know, here we are all these years post the competitive market, and there are a lot of people that are still confused um, about how all this works. And we wanted to come up with a name that was, uh, and a logo that was identifiable uh, as being something different than an energy provider. And uh, something that just kind of stuck, and we've really embraced it. So we, we all love it, and it's, it's been a lot of fun. Well, obviously, electricity has been on everyone's mind, especially with the recent storms. So how did you guys kind of see what happened? How did you kind of advise people on how to handle that? Uh, maybe some, some reaction to the fallout, and how should people uh, look at things moving forward? Sure. You know, for us and our customers, we only place customers in fixed rate contracts in the competitive areas. So uh, the impacts for the members that we serve really didn't have as much to do with any exposure to uh, commodity price increases. It was really a function of how much more energy they might have been using. So so that's the, pr the primary. But there was so much disinformation and so much um, fear. I think that was uh, out in the marketplace, uh, especially around folks who were posting like on Facebook or other kinds of social media things like their gritty bill that, you know, rightly caused people a lot of anxiety. Like, am I going to get hit with an 18000 or $17,000 electricity bill? So so there, there was a lot of concern about that. We also wanted to see, you know, how this played out in terms of, you know, this is a very uh, large financial disruption for a lot of the participants in the marketplace. And so we wanted to see what ended up happening from, you know, what 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 folks would end up falling out, uh, who's going to end up moving, you know, some of their customers to the provider of last resort via some kind of a default. And so, you know, as it turns out, the the effects of that were relative in the competitive market uh, were pretty, pretty mild. Um, you know, in, in terms of the rest of it, you know, I've been in the in the power business since 1995, and that's when it deregulated at the wholesale level. And I've, uh, you know, run and built power generation facilities and been involved with regulated utility delivery companies. Um, and it's it's been and then it was an interesting um, look at how all these things came out. And I, I think more than more than anything, I, I think a lot of disinformation has has continued or, or things that seem to be intuitively appealing as good solutions. Um, they're not. They're, they're they're not things are not quite as simple to fix as, uh, as as we as we want them to be. So uh, one of the things that we've been looking at with the electricity was uh, you mentioned some incentives uh, that what would what would be the best way for someone a place like Texas to try to prevent um, what we had last time. So that right now there's been a lot of incentives toward wind and solar. Um, should there be more incentives for something like coal? Uh, because there's a question of profitability because, uh, I mean, these plants, they cost a lot of money and these companies, the only way they could ensure profitability would be with some of these incentives. Um, uh, do you think that would have been the better approach or do you think maybe winterizing the, the things we already have in place, you know, the wind turbines, we, we saw those freeze, would it, would it have been better to 
have invested in winterizing you know, these uh, structures and, and turbines and pipelines and um, you know, so what, what, what was y'all's take on what the best approach is to, to prevent it? Well, I think the first thing you have to start with is what is the, what's the acceptable scenarios that, that you're willing to live with? Like, what do you build towards? Are we building towards a one in, in a 200 year type event? Like how much resiliency are we willing to pay for collectively to make sure that we have consistent un uninterrupted electricity supply costs? And so I think that's one of the things that gets missed a lot. Like we talk about that. Or how do we prevent this from happening? And can it be done? Absolutely. Uh, you can reduce those probabilities to very, very, very small you know, percentages. But the cost associated with that may be astronomically large. And, and, and that's oftentimes, I think, one of the things that gets missing in some of this. Now, with respect to winterization, you know, that, that gets back into this cost benefit analysis, you know, looking through some of the records and I, I don't have them all kind of in front of me, but I know that like in Oklahoma City, those guys hit, you know, low temperatures they haven't seen since the late 1800s. And I think down here in Houston, some of the temperatures that we saw were like breaking 140 year old records. So it's a very anomalous weather type scenario. And I think when folks are building these power facilities, they're not really thinking through these one in 150 year type scenarios. I can tell you that if you look through the, the list of the public disclosures that have been made, a lot of these companies that have been building renewable, uh, you know, wind in particular, those guys took gargantuan losses. You know, one of the companies that I was reading about, you know, estimated they would lose $250 million because when they sell their output and it doesn't show up, they got to buy it back at those real time prices. And so all that investment one way or the other, whether it's mandated or otherwise, now that it has been proven to be a risk for these companies, I really would be shocked if they didn't undertake the process themselves to make sure they never get caught in that situation again, because for the vast majority of them is extremely costly uh, for, for them to not be able to produce during those periods of time. Um, you know, beyond that, in terms of what's the right mix, you know, one of the things that we don't talk about very much, and it's because technologically we haven't kind of gotten there yet, but we, we have been buying and distributing and consuming or producing, distributing, and consuming electricity pretty much the same way for the last hundred years. We don't make any massive adjustments on the back end. People don't have a good way to manage how much demand that they're actually using. There, there's, there's a huge opportunity for us to not only increase supply, but figure out how to selectively reduce demand. And, and when we say that, we, we tend to think about that is, it's 100%, you're either out or you're not out. And, and there's different gradients of the kinds of demands of what we should be reducing. Like, you know, can you take your, your dishwasher offline? Can you take your clothes washer offline? Can you take your pool pumps offline? Can you keep it to electricity required for home heating and those types of things where there's a prioritization of the demand of how you, how you do that? And I think that technology is going to make its way into the equation and will be a very powerful part of this. If you think about it, it's one of the few places where in every other thing that we buy and sell, there's a kind of a price elasticity of demand. The more expensive it gets, the less of it we want to use. But usually you can't see what it's costing you in real time. And sometimes because of the way you're buying your electricity, you can't tell what it's going to cost you in the long run as well. So I think there's ample room for some technological uh, expansion into that space to really handle some of the demand management. Um, 
your, your other question about baseload, it's a very interesting question about some of these different types of facilities. And really, if you look at the coal universe here, you know, the last coal plant that I'm aware of that was built was built in 2013 in North Texas. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons why, you know, that may be one of the last ones we see for a while. And it's not just because of the environmental consequences associated with it. It's just in the end, coal has a hard time today competing with natural gas fire generation on economics alone. It, it, coal plants tend to have much poor operational flexibility. So if you want to get a coal plant on when it's been offline, it might take a couple of days to get it up and running. And then it has to operate within you know, certain operational parameters that give it a little bit less flexibility that you might get out of a combined cycle natural gas facility. So back in the days you know, when we were thinking about this in let's say the late 90s, early 2000s when natural gas was in the you know, five to seven to nine dollars in MMBTU range, coal was very competitive with gas. But in today's commodity environment, um, you know, depending upon what happens off in the future, natural gas, gas is going to beat it on, on a on a hands down basis uh, every time. So you mentioned kind of the power distribution on on demand. I'm a little bit of a Star Trek nerd. So I remember watching Star Trek The Next Generation. They'd be like, okay, you know, shift the power to the shields or shift it to the phasers or shift it. I'm like, oh, man, that's really cool. Of course, nothing we have that I own, at least. Can You can do that. You know, I can push the gas pedal a little harder at my F-250 or I can turn the AC down. But that's kind of a universal metric. To get to something like that, we'd have to have a very integrated, integrated system in our home. So you say this technology is kind of coming. How far are we before our our dishwashers and our washing machines and our fridge and ice makers, like all that could be on the iPad where you could really um, you know, uh, adjust that. Is that like five years out, 10 years out, 20 years out? Is it here today? And I'm just back yeah, with no, I, I think that all those parts and pieces already exist. It's just how you organize them and put them together. And I think that you'll be able to see some of this stuff within the next five years. And it may very well be something that, um, that you know, what I think is likely to occur is that you're not going to want to be on your iPad figuring out what to stop and start. You're going to want something that can just figure it out for you. You're going to want to have a program that runs through and says, hey, it's really important to me that when I'm at home that I have the temperature within this range and I'm way less concerned about whether the dishwasher runs or, you know, let's not let that electric water heater, you know, move around when it needs to. And, you know, remember that these uh, periods of scarcity are, are somewhat rare. I mean, we don't have a whole lot of these hours per year. And so this is why I think the demand response, the demand management aspect is going to be much more, um, much more important as time goes on. And, and think about it this way, until we see a situation like we saw with wholesale prices for this length of time, you know, the profit and motivation or the financial incentive to really invest heavily on demand management, demand response, it's not kind of there. Now it's very clear that there's a huge amount of value in, in, in investing in those types of uh, solutions and technologies. And I think that's exactly what you're going to see. So the parts and pieces, we already have all different types of IoT based technologies. Um, there's definitely ways that, that people um, can, can understand what's happening in real time wholesale pricing. And it's just a function of, of uh, pulling all these parts together to, to form a, a commercially viable solution that we can roll out for consumers in Texas and really the rest of the country. Yeah, I, I do think it's, you know, you talk about the oil and gas debate right now with the flaring and the waste and all that stuff. I do think it's, it's quite interesting to, to think about 
you know, because my my bill, what's yours in the summer, Josh? Like four or five hundred dollars, something like that, or, or your bill? Uh, it's around three seventy five in the summer. Mm -hmm. I need to come move to your house. Mine's like four hundred. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I need maybe I need that shelter plan. But you know, it would be nice to know. Okay, if we had. I, I, I agree the algorithm would be better. Maybe just ask the algorithm. Hey, algorithm, I want my bill to be 250. What does that mean? And then the algorithm were to tell me, hey, okay, we well, yeah, you can't run these lights for this long. Um, like almost kind of force you into it because there are two things. One, you're saving money. Two, you're saving a uh, scarce commodity, which is, you know, whether it's coal or nuclear or whatever. So I think you we, we talk about, you know, uh, you know the free market. Uh, we talk about being conservationists. This is a way where people like myself who are free market proponents can say, you know what, this is actually good. We, we're conserving energy. We're not wasting it because right now I'm leaving the light on, not thinking about it much. What my power bill up? So I'm saving money. I'm saving energy. And the market is helping me understand the best way to maximize my efficiency, of my tools. So it's something that's a win-win that doesn't have to be forced upon us. Whereas these rolling blackouts were forced upon us because we didn't have the technology to really look and say, okay, listen, you know, if, if they'd have called us up and said, listen, Mr. Ray, you got to get your power down below, you know, 50% reduction. Okay, well, what does that mean? And what are my options here? I didn't even have that ability to work with the power provider um, to come to, 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 come to a, a reasonable conclusion. It was either all or none. And so I think that's, that, that would be an interesting way to see the market work itself out. Yeah, I, I think that that's one of the more important lessons learned from what we saw before is I think there was a distinct, um, the magnitude of the, the demand supply imbalance was so large that I think it caught a lot of the, the distribution providers off guard in terms of their plans for how they actually institute rolling blackouts. Um, you know, ERCOT does not tell each of these uh, transmission distribution service providers what areas that they need to reduce load. They just tell them you got to reduce this amount of load. And what we saw here, and it may, you know, what I'm, I'm certainly no distribution expert on on the way the, the the service territory in Houston is set up through center points system, but it did look like one of the problems that was happening is when they interrupted certain certain areas of load. Like if you let a house get down to you know 20 degrees inside or 35 degrees because you've you've actually interrupted the power there for eight hours as opposed to rotating through every 15 minutes. When you re-energize that house, it's going to try to go max up to get back to temperature. So I think what they found is, hey, we're going to reduce these hundred thousand customers and bring these other hundred thousand on. Well, the hundred thousand that they brought on look more like one hundred and fifty thousand because all, all all the HVAC equipment was trying to recover these these massive temperature losses. Whereas if we had done a better job of making sure that that rotation was done on a very consistent efficient basis we would not have really suffered i mean i think no one really wants to have their power interrupted for a half an hour at a time but i think most of us would have taken that versus you know being stuck in the dark for you know multiple days at a time or having the interior temperatures drop down into you know low low double digits it's just it wasn't a good uh, allocation of the way that all worked and that's one of the things that i'd really like to see a lot of emphasis and effort placed upon if we do get into these situations again and you know electricity is kind of a weird thing that uh, we're always we're always uh on the knife's edge it's just the nature of of the beast that we need to have a better a better uh, program in place we need to have some better um, processes in place to ensure we have a much more orderly process through rotation if we get into one of these situations again because what happened i don't think was acceptable 
No, it definitely wasn't acceptable. And one of the things that we've talked about on the show is that the power companies, from my perspective, um, there's a lot of talk right now about regulator this and regulator that. The power company is not responsible to me, the consumer. And so I don't know how you fix that. I don't want the power companies to be sued daily. But if, if, if there's some consumer um, advocate group or if there's um, you know this politician here, this group there, whatever, that's all fine and dandy. But if they if they never actually responsible to the consumer, then we really have a hard time leveraging it. Um, and so it's one of the things, I don't know how we get there, but I think it's very important. And if that's something as simple as, hey, if you want to buy from TXU, you have to use our smart grid technology to help us work with you to, for power demand, that would be a big step. I would be happy to have that because I could work with them in the summer and the winter. Um, and so that would kind of give me the flexibility if they said, um, you know, hey, listen, you got to cut your power by 15%, 20%, 30%, whatever, cut you off. Like That would be um, at least a step in the right direction. I don't, I don't know if we can get there, but um, so help me out here. Why Josh has got a bigger house than me. He did lives in a McMansion. Okay. He, he lives in like a big old house on the hill over there. <laughs> Why is this bill cheaper than mine? What's going on with this? Well, it depends. Uh, it depends on who your provider is and what, what your rate programs look like. And if you're into something that's optimized for the way you use electricity, that's one of the, one of the positive things. It's one, one of the things that I hear a lot in, in the wake of this is, well, you know, it's the, these people always sort of pop their heads up. And of course, you know, I'm talking my book because this is what I help people do on a day in and day out basis. But uh, here, oh, it's deregulation. I would, you know, we never had this back. Okay, that's not true. So uh, it, it really has has nothing to do with that. One of the nice things from a free market perspective is, you know, the competitive market really allows for a lot of innovation. And we've seen that over and over and over again. Some of the innovations are bad, like uh, the, the gritty type structures that we have been railing against for, you know, many, many years. Um, you know, no consumer has any business uh, participating in the market of last resort for wholesale energy. And, uh, you know, now I think we'll see some rulemaking around that, which I wish wasn't necessary, but probably is. Um, but, you know, one of the things that's kind of nice is, you know, if you're like, let's say you work shift and you were, uh, you know, constantly, um, you know, up during during nighttime working from home or whatever have you, you, you can find a plan that's optimized for the way you use electricity. And uh, that's one of the nice aspects of, of the way uh, the competitive market is, has been you know, unfolding is now we can start to get to really kind of customize solutions for each one of these residential consumers. So in, in your case, it may be a situation where you need to, um, you know, maybe maybe uh, have someone like me help out or, you know, uh, there's some free tools that are out there. We have some free tools on our website just to give you an idea. Am I in market or am I out of market? Um, but yeah, I think that people get sort of surprised at how much um, more effective their costs can be just by you know, taking full advantage of the competitive marketplace. I suspect Josh is probably on one of those like solar nights and free days and weekends. And I see those crazy plans advertised all the time. It, it was, Some of those are gimmicks too. I mean, the more gimmicky, usually the more you pay. So be careful. <laughs> yeah. So I, I spent about three or four hours, uh, researching and trying to get one. I got a wholesale program that gets my costs way down since we, we have a big house, so we use a lot. So we, sure. we got a, a cheap rate. Well, then you just paid out the tooth for this last month. If you get, if you don't have a fixed cost, what are you saying? No, um, I think, I think, I mean, it was like 420. So it was, it was high, higher than normal, but uh, it's a fixed cost, but it's wholesale fixed costs. So I get it at a cheaper rate, but I, I have to use over a certain amount in order to qualify, which I use it every month. So, 
And that's one of the things I think a lot of people get confused about when buying electricity is we, we like to think about buying electricity as kind of like um, every other purchasing experience we make. Like if you go to Costco, like you're like, I know I'm going to get a better deal on Cheerios if I go to Costco because I'm going to buy it in bulk. And you're like, I, I, may not, I may not need all these Cheerios. I may be long and wrong Cheerios for, you know, two years, but, you know, it is what it is. I'm going to. I'm going to go broke saving money or whatever, whatever it is that you want to do there. But electricity is totally uh, opposite of that. It doesn't work that way at all. And I think a lot of people try to sell electricity at the, re at the retail level with some of these notions that are out there that are, that are not right. So as you guys know, the way the, way the, the electricity infrastructure works, we don't really have any ability to store any of it. And so what that results in is it is literally the ultimate just-in-time inventory commodity. So when someone says, well, we're buying it in bulk and we're passing those savings on to you, that's just not possible because you can't buy more electricity than is actually being used and consumed right now. So that it's one of these weird uh, aspects. It doesn't work like anything else that we buy. So a lot of times people might say, hey, well, we have you might think that if you were in a buying group or in some kind of a collective type of thing that that's going to give you more and you know generally speaking i don't think that we've seen that to be the case if that were the case i think most of the aggregation projects that have been out there since the market opened would be you know materially less expensive and you know we see consistently that members that are shopping uh, that we're shopping for on an individual basis will be those numbers all the time and it's because people get lured in by some of these other notions of of the way it works it's just not the way it works <laughs> okay um let's see here one more question for you you said wholesale is not for people like me maybe for big spinners like josh but you know the average folk in texas doesn't need to be on wholesale who is the wholesale market for in your opinion so when we say the wholesale market you really have to clarify what that means because there's not one wholesale market. It's just like the way gas trades. Um, you know, if I'm if I want to buy and sell gas or I want to buy and sell crude on a Ford basis, I could buy and sell it through an exchange. That's a wholesale market. I can buy and sell through ICE. That's another wholesale market. I can buy and sell bilaterally, right, with other counterparties. I do it for next year, next month, next week. So those are all wholesale markets that happen in the electricity in the turn, just like they happen in all the other energy commodities. The wholesale market that people refer to, there's really two that are run by ERCOT um, uh, that are kind of system-wide markets. One is a day-ahead market. That's a wholesale market. And then there's this other market that has always been there since we first opened. It's the oldest one. It was originally called the balancing energy market. And that balancing energy market, what it really was, was to take advantage or to, to clear on a 15 minute basis, the difference between what you thought everything was gonna look like yesterday and what it's actually turning out to be today. So that's a wholesale market that by its very nature is it's the wholesale market of last resort. It's the last place that people go. So I think that again, sometimes when, when some of these guys were selling these wholesale indexed market plans, People think that wholesale means cheaper than retail and without understanding that what that was, was the wholesale market of last resort. It's the last, it's the last iteration. It's like buying and selling intraday gas. 
or trying to make a schedule adjustment to what's happening with your intraday stuff that you can have big swings depending upon what's happening within that gas day. The exact same thing is true in electricity, but the volatility is far higher just because it, it's what it takes to clear that difference between what we thought it was yesterday and what it is in real time. Okay, the website is energyogre.com, O-G-R-E, it's how you spell ogre. For those of you who spell like Josh, energyogre.com is the website. Mr. Bradshaw, anywhere else you want to point people to or any final thoughts before we let you out of here today? Well, I'm pleased because a lot of times when I talk to folks, I see the head hit the table. So I know that I bore people, but not not so much that I put you guys both to sleep. Um, you know, I, I think versus anything for most of the consumers in Texas, uh, there's especially ones that are in the competitive areas that we, we can we can help and that really the, the deregulation law, Senate Bill 7, as it came out way back when, was one of the largest, you know, um, value transfers back to consumers uh, that I think we've ever seen. And, and we need to make sure that most more people take advantage of that. A lot of people kind of um, fall asleep and they don't remember to get back. So these types of times, you know, the silver lining to this is it usually wakes people back up uh, to, to, you know, looking and doing some of the work like what Josh had said. Uh, I don't know that most people want to put three or four hours into uh, doing the research on some of those things. but. If you haven't changed your provider in a few years, um, you're more than likely overpaying. So take the time to, to do a little bit of research. Like I said, we've got some tools on our website to help you understand where you are relative to market. Um, how to choose, uh, you know, the, the PUCT runs a, a website there. If folks want to peruse there, uh, they don't want someone like me to help them. If they want to look at it themselves, it's a, it's a very good resource. Uh, generally speaking, uh, there's a in every one of those offers there's a little hyperlink there to a thing called an electricity fax label and the electricity fax label is kind of like the dna of how that rate program is so if you click on that and you see the fax label has uh looks like the death star version where it's you know it just goes on and on and on the more complicated these things are uh, there's probably some gotchas in there so find find one that's very clean and, and succinct and simple to the point and you're probably going to do better than uh than 95% of consumers here in Texas. Okay, and I will be calling up Josh this afternoon because if you go to energyogre.com slash check, we're gonna be putting his numbers in, we're gonna put my numbers in, and we're gonna figure out what's going on here because I'm a little frustrated that my man is over getting me for a buck fifty every month. Mansion, <laughs> so it's a little frustrating. Okay, energyogre.com is the website. Mr. Bradshaw, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, best of luck to you, and we'll get you on again in the future. I'm sure there will be some power, something. Uh, that would be worth talking about. Um, sure. Well, I'm happy to bore you at the end. Happy to bore you whenever. Uh, we enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks, you. Buddy. All right, Mr. Shelton. Let's see here. What we got left in the roundup today? All right. Uh, our guy, Carl Eichen. My man. My man, Carl. Carl. Cut, to cut oxy steak, remain on board of directors. Gangster status, right? Yes, sir. He's, Go he's in, a, slam the CEO, buy the stock, get on the board, sell some of your stock, stay on the board. <laughs> hey, come on. Yeah, yeah. He's uh he he's been he's been playing this deal like the fiddle for for about two There's years now. Way up. I don't know if you looked at it or not. It's uh well, it's down since I bought it. I picked it up and it went down some freaking. Kind of icon messed me up, I think, selling. But anyways, it's up to 27. So remember, a year ago today, it was at 969, Joshua. 961, 9 a year ago today. 
Right now, it's trading at 27.80. Wow. So it's, it's moving in the right direction. I thought they would make it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I would say, I would say that, uh, that 171.27% increase is the right direction year over year. Yeah. That's a fantastic direction. So another uh, article we have. Louisiana oil and gas industry in danger after President Biden cancels 80 million acre oil lease, which uh, this is not necessarily new. This came out on the 15th, um, but uh, I, I mentioned something. I know it's in Louisiana, uh, but it, it may impact oil prices in a positive way for those out in Midland. But, um, you know, that we're seeing some similar things there as we saw in New Mexico. So, uh for a lot of folks that listen to the show, uh, it might might not be the listen. Best news. This might be go back to just the Texas Longest podcast because you know the BLM might come back into Mexico. So it might just be only Texas and gas because um, you know, New Mexico uh, might lose the BLM. Take Louisiana, it's offshore stuff. So obviously, there's a lot of private stuff in Louisiana and Haynesville, but it's crazy, man. Like you know, New Mexico. I know I haven't looked at the bills lately, but they were talking about putting some stuff through there. It's like good night. Yeah, uh, I mean, whew. Whew. your boy Biden, your boy Biden, he's putting the Thor hammer on him. <laughs> uh, we got two more. One, uh, this one's not not too much related, but I saw it. And I thought, hey, I figured I would at least uh, mention it. Odessa Midland ranked one and two in nation for auto loan refinancing. Auto loan refinancing. I didn't know there was such an industry. I didn't either. If there is one, <laughs> that makes sense that uh, oil and gas workers are getting getting in a pinch. I mean, think about it. You know, so January last year, you're getting ready to start your start your year off like I need that new F two fifty. You go get yeah. it and bang. So bang, yeah. I mean, you know, so you get in a bad spot. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what's going I on. I didn't even know you could you could refinance them, but you know, it makes sense that that's number one and two. So uh, oof, tough time. And then uh, last but not least, Interior Department announces public forum on federal oil gas program. Yeah, we'll link to this in the show notes. One of the listeners sent this over. So if you want to follow what's going on uh, with that, be sure to check it out. I think it's uh, what day is that this week? Is that this week, Josh, or next week? Let's see. I did look over. Let's see. It is Thursday, March the 25th. So yes, Thursday this week. Yeah, because on Tuesday, One to four. it will be linked in the show notes. You just need to go ahead and click that. Um, if you want to follow along because it's coming out it's two days after this podcast airs. So, okay. Anything else, Mr. Shelton? That's it. <clears throat> I just coughed right there on the air for everyone. Just a little, little throat clear to get the, I was trying to mute it, but I never want while we need five stars. <laughs> what happened? I moved my mouse down to click the mute. I hit click and just went on the mute button. So <laughs> it was just a no man's land. And so uh, there you go. You got a nice little throaty clear. Before I remind you, leave us a five-star review. We'll be back next. No, you won't be back next week, Art. You're taking off. Yeah. Dude, you know what you take it off for? It's March, man. It's it's, uh, it's Easter. Easter, <sighs> Easter Monday. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. No. Sure? No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. I'm just making stuff up. You I'm just making stuff up at this point. <laughs> Oh, I'll be here Easter Monday, actually. I'll be here on that one. <laughs> All right. We'll be back next week. Oh, boy. 